Hello, this is Roy Mitchell, and this is Hibla Minute. Before we get to today's guest, C.T. Rowe, who was a pleasure to interview, talking to C.T. helped lift my spirits in a time that seemed so dark and unfortunately so necessary, because things have to change. My apologies to Selena Bruni, who was supposed to be on last week's show, and we'll talk soon, Selena, but the internet up here is crap, and it wasn't working, and to be honest, it was hard for me to do a show last week, and I can't imagine what kind of week this has been for so many people of color, indigenous people, so many people. They're exhausted, and yet in this pandemic, there's an uprising going on and some hope for change. Again and again, we're seeing support for black lives because black lives matter. Governments and the police are being exposed as places of racism and violence. It has never been a good time for people of color. Things might get better. We have to believe they can, but they aren't good enough. America has never been great, and Canada, unless you listen to Doug Ford, has its own history of anti-black racism, anti-Asian racism, and indigenous genocide and erasure. And we have just everyday racism. Things have to change, and they have to change here. And for example, people ask why a council would vote down raising a rainbow flag. That's a pretty low bar. And they can't even get over that. And council is made up of retired teachers, hospital directors, people with queer sons, sisters, grandchildren, and they voted against a rainbow flag. Is this something you'd expect in 2020 in Canada? Yeah. Racism and homophobia are Canadian. Maybe not as flashy as the States, maybe not as in-your-face, maybe more polite and well-meaning. I mean, imagine a counselor who talks about his family's persecution under the Nazis in Hungary, not understanding the need for a rainbow flag. He needs a lesson in intersectionality. So yes, it was a hard week to focus on doing this podcast, and the internet was a good excuse not to. I spent the week watching the news, reading and listening to black voices here in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. Listen to them talk about their lives and the struggles. I am linking to some podcasts in the notes that you can listen to. Please support and talk about black lives and Black Lives Matter and work for change online and offline because things have to change. We can't see racism continue to destroy lives. And now about today's show. As I said, I was so glad to talk to C.T. She moved up here after playing in the National Ballet Orchestra of Canada. She left a glamorous life of the ballet, traveling the world, huge music halls, seeing great dancers, to live here. She celebrated her 80th birthday this year, and we looked back on her life, how she started in music, and what life is like now for her. I admire C.T. because she is not only an artist, she's also a fighter. She picketed Carnegie Hall. You'll find out why in the interview. And a special treat at the end. There's music as always, but this time it's CT playing it. At the top of the show, you'll hear the joy in our voices. The internet up here does suck. And after a lot of work, finally, we figured it out. CT, welcome to Hibla Minute. I'm so glad you could make it. Well, thanks, Roy. I'm glad I could too. (laughs) Yeah, we all are happy about that. Yes. First thing off the top. How has the pandemic affected you? Oh, the pandemic. Actually, it hasn't affected me as much as some people I know because I live I live on a lake and I don't go many places anyway. I'm used to being alone and, and doing my own thing. 
However, I really, I miss having people drop in. I miss having dinners. I do miss a lot, but I haven't gotten too, too upset about it. It's just, I, I'm a little grumpy. That's all. You're never grumpy. I know. I'm never grumpy, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm starting to get grumpy. You live in such a beautiful place on Fraser Lake. Tell us what what you can see out of your window. Oh, it's just gorgeous. It's, uh, I have huge trees. The lake is right close to me and 12 steps and I can be in the water. I have a dog and a cat. It was just, it's a wonderful place to be. And I can see the sunset every night. Oh, beautiful. I wanted to talk to you about being a musician and how you ended up here. So first off, how did you get started in music? Well, I, as a little kid, my mother first, she had me in dance class. And also the first song I ever learned, we were in New Jersey. That's where I grew up. The first song she taught me was the Star Spangled Banner, which is a very difficult song. My mother and dad took me to the circus. I guess it was in Philadelphia or I don't know where it was, but we stopped at one of those recording booths. This was about 1943 or four. I was about three or four years old. And I still have this little recording and I I get to sing uh, the Star Spangled Banner and it's in tune. I say, can you, you know, in the middle where it goes, and the rocket's red glare. I get off, I get, and the rocket's right there. I get about a third lower and my mother jumps right in and she gets, she starts singing and gets me right back on key. And there I go. And so there I was at three and a half singing the Star Spangled Banner. Then they gave me piano lessons, but we didn't have a piano. And so I had to practice at my grandmother's piano and that, that was too hard. So then we had recorders in school. And in the third grade, people who were good at the recorder could choose an instrument to play. And the uh, band director came around with all the instruments, didn't have any violins. And I really liked the flute because it was really shiny and I just loved it. So I went home and I said to my mother, I can take lessons on the flute and it's gonna cost $2.50 to rent the flute each month. And my mother said, well, I'm not gonna pay $2.50 to rent a flute. You can use your grandmother's violin. You can play the violin. I said, okay, you know. So I go off to school with my grandmother's violin, which is a full-size violin. The teacher says, oh, I'm afraid you're going to need a half-size violin. It's going to be 250 to rent. And I guess by that time, I had forgotten about the flute. And so I, I got the violin. And I had one lesson on the violin. And the teacher called my parents up and said, I should have private lessons. So there was a man who came from Philadelphia every Saturday His mother lived in Pittman. That's where I'm from, Pittman, New Jersey. He came to visit his mother, and he taught at his mother's house, his teeny weeny little house. He was a good teacher. I stayed with him all through high school, and then I went to uh, Rutgers University, Douglas College, and I was a music major, and I had another teacher who I couldn't stand, Mm -hmm. but that's always the way it is. When I went to Yale, I had yet another teacher, and I was still playing the violin, and they needed... They needed a person to play viola. I said, I was asked. No, I was told. (laughs) I was told I was going to play viola. And I said, no, I'm not playing viola. I don't even read the clef. It's a whole different clef. I said, no, there's no way. And then I got this message from the dean. And I was supposed to go see the dean. So I went to see the dean and I sat there. And he had a a paper in front of him. And he, he kind of moved the paper around. And he said, 
Oh, I see that you're on a full scholarship here. We have a lovely Guarneri viola for you to play, blah, blah, blah. And I, I got the message. I said, <laughs> okay, okay. I guess it gave me a full scholarship, and now I'm playing viola. Anyway, I decided to learn the clef. I wasn't going to learn it by, there's a way you can do it. You, you can play up a note or down a note. You can do that. I decided I was going to really learn it. So I, I sort of locked myself in the practice room, and I really learned how to do the clef. The first piece I ever played was the uh, Brahms clarinet quintet, and it was uh, with Imre Rozhnyai, who was actually from Canada. He had come in the Hungarian Revolution. He had come with her. And it was the Brahms, yeah, Brahms clarinet, which has a beautiful viola part. I loved the viola. I played really well. And it was, it was my voice. It was a lower voice, and it was a kind of an inner voice. It didn't stick out. And from there on, I was a, I was a viola player. But now I'm back to violin. <laughs> I met a lot of musicians. And one of the musicians I met, was her name was... Uh, Joan Kalish, and she was from the Bronx, and she had been to music and art high school. She had been to famous women's college, Vassar, and she had gone to Vassar, and now she, she graduated one year before me. She went to Italy to be with her boyfriend, Al Curran, who was actually a fairly famous composer in, in those circles, but she sort of gave up on him. So she moved back, and I was at the Yale Summer School for my last year, she said, when you graduate, do you want to get an apartment in New York? And I said, yes. And so, so we got an apartment. I had a car. It was a Nash Rambler. It made it easier to get around. We found a really nice apartment on uh, West 75th Street. At that time, you could actually live on the Upper West Side. This is West 75th and Central Park. And it was a basement apartment. We had to keep the lights on all the time. But it was great. And we just started freelancing. We both got jobs right away, but they were tours. Now, Joan's tour was a little bit more reasonable than mine. I think Joan was, had a three-week tour with ABT. I had a 10-week tour with this French ballet company. I was the only viola in the orchestra. The orchestra was really puny and the ballet company wasn't much. And we played in like high school auditoriums and it was trial by fire. But anyway, after 10 weeks, I decided that's it for touring. But of course, I went on lots more tours with the National Ballet. I sought my fortune in, in New York. I did that and I played with the um, American Symphony Orchestra, led by uh, Leopold Stokowski, who was a famous, famous conductor. He conducted the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra. He was famous for the, um, the silken strings of the Philadelphia Orchestra. He had an apartment, big, beautiful apartment on uh, Central Park West, and I went there for an audition. He put up the bass part of Beethoven 9. Da -da 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 I looked at the bass part and I thought, I thought to myself, I could play what I remember of the viola part. It's the same part, but I, so I said, Maestro, do you really want me to play the bass part? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so we did that. And then we sat down and, and he said, who were your teachers? And I, I told him my teachers and he said, no, they were not your teachers. You are your own best teacher. <laughs> he, he was a riot. Anyway, he liked to hire women and any kind of minority he wanted in his orchestra. That was amazing. Because at that time, there were no women or orchestras. It was 
New York Philharmonic, Philadelphia Orchestra, Cleveland Orchestra. No, none of these big orchestras had women. The smaller ones like Dallas and Indiana and places like that, they had women, but not the bigger ones. I had a group, a bunch of us I had Joan and me and Mimi Sternwolf and a bunch of us had a group called the Radical Women's Music Collective. And we only played women uh, music by women. People laughed at us. They just laughed at us. How are you? How are you going to find? How are you going to find music written by women? Well, actually, uh, we, as we know now, there are a lot of there's a lot of music written by women. When would have you been in this group? I guess 1966, 65. Wow. We only played one concert. Uh, we played a piece by Pete Seeger's mother, a string quartet. And we played a piece by Cecile Chaminade. I wasn't in that. It was a trio. It was a trio for violin, piano, and cello. Cecile Chaminade. I, I don't really remember who she was. She sounds French, but I'm not sure. And then somehow the group just broke up because everybody, not everybody, but a lot of women in the group, there was only about seven of us, a couple of, of the cello player and a couple of players, they wanted to play music. Brahms and stuff like that. They wanted to play that music. And we said, no, this is not what we're doing, you know? So that kind of, it kind of broke up. We also, oh yes, as a group, we picketed Carnegie Hall because we wanted women in the orchestras. And actually, I feel very responsible for the fact that there were so many women in the National Ballet Orchestra. I was on the orchestra committee, and we were trying to figure out how we were going to do the auditions. I just kept saying, we have to have the screen up. I said, why do you think so many women in the Montreal Symphony? Because they have a screen, and the people can't see you. Right. You play behind the screen, so they don't know who's sitting there. That's right. Oh. You play behind the screen, yes. But they wanted, in the National Ballet, Romano Florio was the conductor. He's in Houston conducting there. They said, okay, we'll have the screen for the first round, but for the second round, we'll, we'll take the screen away. We fought long and hard. Say, no, 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 because why, why have the screen one round and not the final round? That's why we have so many really good women in, in the National Ballet Orchestra. Well, you're a fighter. You performed at the first Michigan Women's Music Festival. Yes. First of all, what was the Michigan Women's Music Festival, and what was it like to perform there? Oh, it was it was it was fantastic. The first one, I must say, was very small. It was only around 500 women, and it got to be the peak. I think the tenth the tenth year when I played with Farron, there were eight thousand women there. They would have a crew, all women, build these big stages and big tents and there was food oh it was just amazing it was like a, a little village in the beginning it was a lot more folk music and that's when we sort of needed women's music because it was mostly lesbians and you can you can uh, determine that by the way they spelled women w-o-m-y-n that indicated that was all the lesbians right I mean, I guess there were some some women who weren't lesbians, but when probably when they left the uh, the land, they were lesbians by then. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, it was a riot because my partner April, our act was called CT and April. She's a fantastic guitar player, and I played viola, and uh, she played guitar and banjo, and I played viola and auto harp and guitar and stuff like that. We wrote music. It was a cross between folk and classical and. It was really interesting. It was really, it was fun to write. It, I mean, you couldn't really play in a bar or anything like that. We gave a couple of concerts in Toronto. We gave one in uh, Boston once. And I guess we, if we'd have 
kept at it. We could have, I don't know. We never even made a CD. We never, we have reel-to-reel tapes. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and cassette tapes. I mean, the reel-to-reel was incredibly fun. And then we have cassettes, but that's it. We still write, to this day, when she comes to visit me, we're still writing music. (laughs) Did you do a lot of traveling with the National Ballet? And where did you go? Yes, we did a lot of traveling. Every year, we would go either to the East Coast or to the West Coast in September. And that was, we did that, oh, I guess all through the 80s and then maybe a little in the 90s, but then all the the money dried up and it's expensive, really expensive to tour because the National Ballet takes everything, all their sets, all their costumes, even washer and dryer (laughs) for the costumes. Yeah, High, his name is High Meadows. He died of AIDS a long time ago. But he, he was a great guy, and he just didn't trust anybody's anybody else's washer and dryer because they have to they have to clean those costumes all the time. So I was amazed at that. Anyway, I loved the tours; they were wonderful. We would just it was it was great. The Western tours we would pick up players because we had a fairly big orchestra. We had a small orchestra traveling, but then we would pick up players. So that's the only problem that we would have to rehearse. The players that we got weren't always, well, they well, they wouldn't practice their parts. They just, you know, it was a pickup gig. It just didn't matter. We we carried it, you know, the um, our, our little orchestra carried it. In the Eastern tours, we didn't we didn't pick up players. We just took a small orchestra, and we never did Swan Lake or, or, or Sleeping Beauty or any of those things. We did smaller numbers on the Eastern tours. And you must have seen some amazing theaters. Which which theater stands out for you? The ones in um, in Europe. We went three times to Germany. Yeah, I think it was in Wiesbaden or somewhere that you wouldn't think that they had this beautiful hall and that you know it's just beautiful acoustics and I don't know just old everything. Those theaters there that we played in were so old. And then there was a brand new one in Berlin that we played in. It was. Fabulous. I don't know what it was called. It was huge. Oh, and then we played in Mexico City in one, it must be the oldest theater in North America. I don't know, maybe not, but they, it was so dark at the end of Shizel, they, they lit it. I don't know. I guess they didn't have the proper lighting. It was so dark, you could almost not see the dancers, all the willies in the end when they, they hop around there. Oh, that was a, that was interesting because an awful lot of the corps de ballet was sick there were so many and and there was it was such an old theater everybody had the same had the same bathroom like the the, uh, the dancers and the the orchestra and it was it so we knew we knew that all the willies were in their in their tutus up chucking <laughs> and trying to get on stage there should be about i don't know 20 there's about five it was it was terrible <laughs> it was really people talk about ballet and it's so glamorous and i once heard somebody say that and you were in the prime position to hear this and, and verify if it's true because you're sitting beside the stage and dancers make a lot of noises grunts and groans and bones did you hear a lot of grunts and groans from the pit um yes i could hear i could hear some grunts and groans but yes the Dancing, you should you should see the dancers' feet. They are oh, they're they're a mess. They've got open sores and Ooh. oh, it's horrible. The life of a dancer is really not good. 
especially for the women, because the women can't eat. Because they gain one pound, the uh, principal dancer is supposed to be lifting them, complains, oh, you're too heavy. And they're all like thin as rails. Right. They all weigh about 100 pounds. And, so, and they can't eat. The guys can eat, at least. But the women, oh, it's a shame. Well, when I was there, they didn't really eat right. They didn't, I, I guess now it's changed. I think they have nutrition. They have better nutrition. And, and they all smoked. They also like to keep their weight down. Right. Everybody smoked. Do you follow along with what's happening on stage? Do, can you watch ballet and play at the same time? Yeah, you can. If you're on the edge, if it's a, it's a wide pit and you're on the edge, you can look up and see the dancing. The O'Keefe Center, where I played most of the time, which then it changed to the Sony Center, and then it was the Hummingbird, or the Hummingbird and then the Sony, but the pit was so deep, it was really hard to see. But it, like a place like Ottawa, they had a really nice wide pit, and the viola players always sat on the, the edge there underneath the conductor. So if you knew the ballet, you could see quite a lot of it. <laughs> and uh, I loved I loved looking at it. And whenever the orchestra wasn't involved, I would always go out in the audience and, and watch the, the dancers. And on the tours, we would get actually get to know some of the dancers, which was great. And also, I should add that National Ballet of Canada is one of the very few companies who has their own orchestra. When I was in New York, it was hard. And it was in the 70s, 70s, it was dirty. And there was a lot of garbage strikes. And it was just really hard. And I was, it was in the American Symphony. And one of the guys told me that there was, they were having auditions in Toronto. I knew nothing about Toronto. And I decided I'll, I'll audition for an orchestra. I'll play, I'll get... You know, I won't have to hunt around for jobs. So I auditioned for the orchestra. I got in. I, I was amazed I, I just, <laughs> that I did. But I, I got in and moved to Toronto. When I was coming from the airport for my audition, I was in the cab, and I look out, and I see this great body of water. And I say to the cab driver, what's that water out there? He says, it's the lake. I say, what lake? He says, Lake Ontario, madam. <laughs> So that's how much I knew about Toronto. And I still had the airplane ringing in my ears when I took the audition. And that's why I thought, I'm never going to pass this audition. <laughs> Is there some dancer that you remember, one person that sticks out in your mind as a fantastic dancer? Oh, yeah. Karen Kane was a fantastic dancer. Martine Lamy was really, really, really fa fantastic. I just loved her dancing. And Rex Harrington, who I, I got to know a little bit, was he's a great guy, and I really liked his dancing. And he was just fun to be with. He seems so down-to-earth. Rex Harrington seemed really down-to-earth. Yes, me. Rex Harrington. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely great guy. I just loved him. And there were uh, Frank Augustine. I liked him, too. He wasn't he was a good dancer. Actually, the dancers are even better now. If I started my career now, playing like I did when I started my career, I wouldn't get anywhere. The players are so much better. Why do you think that? It's just like everything. It's like all the baseball players are better, all the uh, the hockey players, the, the basketball players, the musicians, the, the violinists, everybody. They're just every decade. And the kids coming out of music schools are fantastic. And I worry about them because there's not much room for them because all the orchestras, everybody's sitting on their jobs because they know what's going to happen. It's strange. Classical music is... I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I hope it's. I hope it sticks around, but it's tough, really tough. 
Right. You retired and you moved up here. How long ago did you move? This is my 17th year. I came up in 2004. In Toronto, you were surrounded by music. How did you adjust to life in the country? Oh, I practiced for life in the country. I went on so many camping trips. I loved camping and hiking and canoeing, and I just practiced. 20 years before I retired, when I bought a house in Leslieville, I said to myself, I'm going to trade this house for a house on a lake. And I thought that time, the prices in Toronto were about the same as a beautiful house on the lake in Muskoka. However, it all changed around. I've never looked back. And didn't you just walk into your house and buy it the same day? I... Had I gave myself one weekend because I was working with a ballet and I, I had two friends helping me. And yes, we found this in, in one weekend. I didn't even walk into the house. I just drove and Val Miles was my uh, representative. And we came in the driveway and I looked at the lake and I thought to myself, this, this is where I'm going to live. I don't care if I have to work because at that time I didn't know if I would have enough money. I didn't know if I was going to get enough social security from the States and CPP. I didn't really know how much money I was going to get, but I'm fine. I'm so glad you ended up here. Before we go, CT, is there anything you'd like to add? Yes, I, I, I would like to add that I was going to become the greatest bluegrass player when I moved up here because I knew there was a lot of bluegrass music. And the problem is I don't sound bluegrassy enough. I have a, a, my sound is very classical. And it's very hard. It's very hard not to sound the way I sound. And so even though I practice all the bluegrass tunes and I know a lot of tunes, I, I, I don't really sound like a bluegrass player. So what I did was I'm playing classical now also with piano players and I do both. Good to know. So I might even hear you one day do this some bluegrass. Yeah, well, you, you're going you're gonna to play uh, something that I recorded I recorded oh maybe five years ago with uh, Dan Schmidt. He he's playing the piano. Piano's kind of loud. Well, he mixed it. That's why the piano's loud. And it's a bit, it's a piece by Shostakovich called Romance, and it was used in Britain for a, a thing called The Gadfly. And I don't know if it was a radio show or a TV show, but people some people have heard it say, "Oh, that's The Gadfly." So anyway, it's uh, it's about three minutes long, and uh, it's it's pretty good. Well, I look forward to playing it. Thank you so much, CT, for this. Thank you, Roy.
That's it. Check out the podcast that I linked to in the notes and support and amplify black voices. Black Lives Matter. Thank you to my guest, C.T. Rowe. That was fun. So for now, thank you all for listening. This is Roy Mitchell, and this has been Hibla Minute. <laughs>